Murder on the Music Scene has rebranded. We are now going by the name Mysterious-ish. Join us for Season 2 of Mysterious-ish, where we will be discussing conspiracy theories such as time travel and aliens. Season 2 premieres March 22nd with two new episodes. Murder on the Music Scene contains graphic and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Murder on the Music Scene, the podcast where a music educator and a music enthusiast discuss the deaths of musicians and mysteries surrounding them. I am Erica. I'm Caitlin. Today we're going to be discussing the death of Mia Zapata. Yes, Mia! So actually, really quick before we get started, this is super relevant to our first episode. I like found this article the other day while I was at school, work, school, whatever, same thing. And it's literally the title, the headline is, Kurt Cobain's hair is up for auction. What? Yeah. I literally like, what? I have no freaking words. No words. But it says that six strands of Kurt Cobain's hair are being auctioned as part of iconic auctions, the Amazing Music Auction, which also includes personally owned stage used or signed musical memorabilia from Cobain and Nirvana as well as like a bunch of other famous people I've never even heard of such a thing me neither that's so strange why would you want someone's hair I mean I guess we could like clone him but it's probably gonna sell for like more money than any of us can fathom Mm -hmm. it says regarding how Cobain's hair ended up in its possession iconic auctions says this is a -a one-of-a-kind artifact oh wait this one-of-a-kind artifact is entirely fresh to market and is accompanied by an impeccable lineage of provenance including photos of Kurt posing with the woman who cut his hair scissors in hand and a fantastic shot of the hair being actually or actually being cut what i so you're saying that she kept his hair i freaking guess i mean think about it like if you had a famous person come to you and be like hey cut my hair wouldn't you like keep it i guess i don't know i think that's strange i don't think i would keep it i don't know hair is a little weird yes hair is like especially like wet hair Mm -hmm. oh my god i can't all the time when my mom would, like, cut my hair when I was younger, and she would, like, be like, do you want to hold it? I'm like, no. no. Ew, get that yeah, away from me. she knew that it, like, creeped me out. So I was Disgusting. like, ugh, no. I hate it. Hair yeah. grosses me out. Mm-hmm. Like, loose mm-hmm. hair. Obviously not hair on my head grosses me out, but, like, <laughs> loose hair is disgusting. I wonder, yeah, I wonder why that is, but. I don't know, <clears throat> I have, like, loose hair phobia. It's probably an actual phobia. Everything's like a phobia. Anyways, so welcome to Murder on the Music Scene, where we discuss our um, phobias. Let's get started. All right, I'm going to tell you this right now. Her biography is, like, everywhere, so I apologize. Mia Catherine Zapata was born August 25th of 1965. She was born in Chicago, but was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. 
Louisville. Louisville. Oh my god, I thought no, I it's, said Louisville. it's literally no, it's literally like we pronounce it Louisville, but I've heard so many people call it Louisville, and I hate it. I hate that it's Louisville. 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 And in Louisville, Kentucky, she attended Presentation Academy High School. Mia also learned how to play the guitar and piano by the age of nine. She, oh. yeah, she was influenced by pup, 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 punk rock bands along with jazz, blues, and R&B singers, such as Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday. Oh, Billie Holiday is going to have them. to be an episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was murdered. <laughs> murdered. Jimmy Reed, Ray, uh, Ray Charles, and much more. In 1984, Mia enrolled into Antoch? Antioch, maybe? Antioch? I don't know. I'm Antioch? sorry. College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, <clears throat> as a liberal arts student. In September of 1986, she and three friends formed the punk rock band, The Gits. Oh, The Gits is spelled <clears throat> G-I-T-S. The Gits. Like, the Gits. Git. Go on, Git. <laughs> Anyways. In 1989, the band decided to move to Seattle, Washington to an abandoned house that they like to call the Rat House. That tracks. I love that. The Rat House. I'm going to start calling my place the Rat House. (laughs) (laughs) Mia found a job at the local bar. The band released a series of well-received singles on a local independent record record label from the year 1990 to 91. The Gets were making a name for themselves in the music scene and often played shows with their friend Seven Year Bitch. Seven Year yeah, Bitch. Seven I year like bitch. that. What a, what a band name. I love that. What a band name. <laughs> in 1992, the band released its debut album, Frenching the Bully, followed by their final album, Enter the Conquering Chicken, in 1993. <laughs> Man, the like punk rock grunge scene mm-hmm. was like a whole different level of... What the hell? <laughs> I love it, though. It, yeah. Let's see. A little bit about her family. Um, I'm not going to lie. I couldn't find much about her family, which was surprising to mm-hmm. me. So I just kind of have, like, some quotes that kind of lead into her death a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Zapata came from a wealthy family, but often lived without its good comforts. As her father once said, she lived on two different sides of the street. The one side with fancy schools, wealthy family, and tennis clubs. And when she got to the other side, none of those things meant anything to her. See, Mia's music often led to rejection of final comfort. Mia was also well-connected in her community. Peter Shetsy? Shetsy? That's something. That's Shetsy. That's (laughs) that's a little My man Peter basically recalls. (laughs) (laughs) Mia was the hub of several social circles. A magnetic personality who drew all sorts of people together who otherwise might have never met. Everything that I read said that she was, like, a super fantastic human being to mm-hmm. be around. That she was just always, like, always smiling and she was just happy and, like, her friends meant everything to her and her right. family. She was very, which, obviously then, like, with her being in a band and then also, like, working at a bar and knowing everyone because she's so social... Right. Opened, like, you know, just a whole bunch of people knowing her, so it could have been, like, anyone. Yep. All right, so here's where it kind of gets juicy, guys. July 7th of 1993, around 2 a.m., Mia left the Comet Tavern in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle. She was currently staying at a studio space in a basement of an apartment building, which was located a block away. 
It was reported that she briefly visited a friend or was looking for her boyfriend at the apartment building. So, as I said, I read like two or three different articles, so I kind of found different things. It's kind of sus. Right, the fact that nobody actually, like, that there's so many different reports about what she was doing that night. Mm -hmm. And that was, like, the last time that Mia was seen alive, actually. Mm. That's so sad. Rumor has it is that she was either walking to another friend's house or to a different location to find her boyfriend. A couple blocks away, Mia's body was found near the intersection of 24th Avenue South and South Washington Street around 3.30 a.m. She was beaten, raped, and strangled. It was believed she was encountered by her attacker around 2.15 a.m. Her body was not initially identified. She had no form of ID on her. And really weird, like oddly, there was no evidence or fingerprints. Like, there was no evidence of fingerprints, blood, or semen at the scene. That's so weird. Yeah, you would think that there would be something. Right. Even, like, pre-cum. Right, yeah. Literally nothing? That's crazy. But she was later identified by the medical examiner, who was actually a fan of the Gits, and he oh, recognized no. her. Oh, can you imagine mm-hmm. being a medical examiner and having your favorite band, one of the members, come in on your table? Oh my god, that's mm-hmm. that's a nightmare. Yeah. Ugh. And, like, I read that he had to, like, call one of the bandmates and be like, hey, your singer's basically just laying on my table, you need to come identify her. <sighs> That's awful. I cannot imagine that. No. But listen, listen, listen. This is where it kind of got sus for me. As I said, you know, she was found strangled. Right. According to the examiner, she was not strangled. What? You're right. But I read that she was strangled with her hoodie strings. Yeah, that's what, that's everything that I read too. That it was like just... But this one, this one, this is why it's so sus. Like this one thing, it said, oh yeah, the medical examiner, it examiner said that she was not strangled but the autopsy showed that she was that she struggled and suffered a blunt impact to her abdomen so basically she died from blunt force trauma Mm. well okay so i actually do recall in some of the articles that i read they said that like even if she hadn't been strangled she would have succumbed to all of her injuries because she was beaten so badly right this like this attack was absolutely brutal Mm. and completely unnecessary but like it was just brutal so she regardless she would have died but ugh, awful so like i had no idea who this lady even was i'm not gonna lie so like everything was a surprise to me so can I tell you a conspiracy theory? Yes, absolutely. Let me hear it. Okay, so like I said, I knew nothing about this lady. And so like to keep everything like a surprise, I don't even know who actually killed her. Like I don't know anything. Oh girl, you're in for it. I know. <laughs> like I can't I can't wait actually. So just by like, you know, reading the articles and just how like everything came about i kind of find it a little sus that she you know was with a friend but yeah she was looking for her boyfriend so like what if like the friend and the said boyfriend Mm -hmm. was um like in on it right like what if this or like what if this boyfriend wanted like her dead and was like oh hey yeah i'm gonna be at home or at this friend's place can you meet me there and then Mm -hmm. mia comes to find out that she's that he's not there, so she's going to look for him, and bam, attack the boyfriend. That tracks. I mean, actually, like, most of the podcasts that I listen to say, like, the husband always did it, but this can, like, the significant other always did it, you know? Right. 
I mean, it could have even been the friend. Maybe vice right. versa. The friend would be like, hey, yeah, meet me at my apartment. And right, then be like, right. oh, actually, I'm at this other friend's house. Can you come through? And then right. that would explain her walk in, like, two or whatever blocks. to. The- so she was attacked in that two-block two walk? Yes, what I read. Okay, okay, that's wild. Um, I, like, I read somewhere that she, well, I read everywhere, that she was found like between two catholic churches and that she was like which laying... is so weird because yes. like i never even read anything about that right i don't know <clears throat> but her like body position like her arms were completely spread out but her legs were like together so like authorities were like thinking that it was a that it had a religious connection because she looked like she was hanging on a crucifix really yeah so that's so weird that I could not find anything about yeah. that. That was actually, like, huge in the investigation. They really thought that it had, like, a like a real meaning to why she died. Like, they thought that... We'll get into it. <laughs> but... <laughs> so, I found this on an article, and I'm just going to quote it. So, in the aftermath of her murder, friends created a self-defense group called Home Alive, which disbanded in 2010. Home Alive has organized benefit concerts and CDs with the participation of many Seattle's music elite, such as Nirvana, one of Kurt Cobain's final public appearances, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Heart, and the Presidents of the United States of America. I'm assuming that's a band. Presidents of the United States of America. It's just like all of the presidents that have ever existed up until 1993. Why not? (laughs) After her death, the Gits' second album, Enter the Conquering Chicken, was released. The album cover art was a painting of Mia Zapata by artist Mark Pollard. Oh, that's sad. He created it the day that she died. Joan Jett recorded an album with the surviving members of the Gits in 1995 called Evil Stig. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, Evil Stig, which is Gits Live Backwards. Wow. So go. actually, uh, funny story, the way that I heard about Mia Zapata was in my um, junior year of college, We during my music history course, which um, don't ever take a music history course, it's awful. It literally will be the death of you. So in that course, I had to write a um, like a 5,000 word paper or something, and I chose to do it over like a biography of Joan Jett and Stevie Nicks. It was basically like female rock stars was like the topic and so I did it over uh Joan Jett and Stevie Nicks and the reason that I heard about Mia Zapata is because in one of the books about Joan Jett that I was reading mentioned that she had that Joan Jett had recorded with the gets after Mia's Mm. death so that's how I know like anything about Mia Zapata right but yeah that's wild that she like my laptop is screaming But it's wild that she, or that Kurt Cobain, like, recorded with them and, like, appeared months before his death. Right. Because she died in July of 1993 and Kurt Mm. died in April of 1994. Like, it's just crazy. They were both, like, in Seattle. It's just just so coincidental. It's crazy. Yeah, it's weird. I smell conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Oh, the spiciness. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we ready for some conspiracy theories Uh, here? You know, I love me some conspiracy theories. All right, here we go. 
So, in an archived article by the Seattle Times, which was written five years after Mia's murder, they throw throw around a lot of ideas about who and why Mia was murdered and, like, why it was so violent. So, the first idea that they had was that it was a drug deal gone bad or a, quote-unquote, prostitution encounter gone bad. So, um, these are her words, um, not mine. I did not say prostitution. It was theirs. Um, but that theory quickly shifted to her boyfriend did it. Mm. So, uh, now both of these, like, theories are super problematic. Um, the first one about it being drug or sex related, that's, like, the first thing that authorities always jump to. They just, like, always are, like, Hey, it was drug related. Mm-hmm. Mm, Always. Newsflash. Not everyone does drugs and not every woman is a sex worker. Okay. Also, if she is a sex worker, leave her alone. Who cares? Let her do her. True, true. The second one. So the boyfriend did it theory is problematic because her boyfriend was actually a Vietnam veteran who was apparently oh. quote unquote two decades older than Mia. So oh. boy had some issues. He had some problems. Um, and like I said, usually the boyfriend or husband did it. Like normally I will always say the boyfriend did it, husband right. did it, whatever. But it sounds like me, sounds to me like Mia's friends were s- suspicious simply because he was a veteran. Okay. Yes. Veterans can suffer from PTSD. I get that. But also we can't like always jump to that conclusion that they killed somebody. Like that's stupid. Right. That just, that just is, that doesn't track. Sorry, but it doesn't. Not everyone kills someone. Like, not everyone's a murderer. <laughs> uh, so, luckily, the police thoroughly examined him, and he cooperated a thousand percent. He literally, like, gave them all of his DNA samples that they asked for. Like, he cooperated so well, and he had a solid alibi for that night. So, he was cleared. He mm. didn't do it. Oh, that's good. So, they also threw around the idea that she could have been murdered by an acquaintance. So, apparently, there was a studio, like the studio where the band would rehearse, (laughs) where the band would rehearse and record, um, and like a bunch of people had access to it. It's a studio, like a bunch of people are going to have access to it. They're going to be able to get in and record or whatever. So, it's, it's a recording studio, and it's... It's soundproof. Obviously, this is common knowledge, but like, because everyone knows, like, it's a recording studio. It's going to be soundproof so that you don't hear other sounds when you're recording. Duh. But bands, like, specifically bands who perform there and record there know, like, how soundproof it is, like, the level of soundproof that it is. And there was also a loading ramp that would have made it so much easier to transport her body into a vehicle. Mm. So also... She apparently had a microphone that she took her took with her damn near everywhere. Like she was hardly ever without this thing. Microphones are expensive, so like I get it, girl. If you want to carry around your microphone, freaking do it. Right. <laughs> carry around that mic. Yes. So, microphone that she carries with her everywhere. The next day, like the day after her murder, it was found at the studio. So like they were hinting at Like, the fact that she, like, the studio was the last place that she was. Because why is she traveling anywhere without her mic when she never does? Right. So, mysteriously, two weeks after Mia's murder, 
The studio was cleaned, like top to bottom. And they think that this was literally the first time that the studio had ever been cleaned. So first of all, that's disgusting. Second of all, I smell conspiracy. That's highly sus. So, um, yeah, but uh, murdering someone in a in a place tends to call for some sort of uh, cleanup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even if she was strangled. Like, she was beaten, so there would be some sort of evidence right. of some sort. Anyways, so there were also um, thoughts that she could have been murdered by a serial killer. Uh, some dude named Ed Show. S-H-A-U. Show? Show? I don't know. He wrote a book about the Green River Killer, who I actually just listened to. A, uh, one of my podcasts covered it. I can't remember which one it was, but one of my podcasts covered that case, and it was wild. But he believed, this Ed guy, believed that... <laughs> this is such bullshit. This Ed Show Shao guy believed that Maria... Maria? Oh my Maria. god. Maria. Mia believed that Mia was mistaken to be a prostitute again not my words um but seriously why do all men think that women have to be mistaken for prostitutes like her outfit doesn't determine her occupation true stop just stop okay anyways so he thought that she was mistaken to be a sex worker and was murdered and intentionally staged in like the religious way that she was but the detective on mia's case shot this theory down pretty quickly Stating that, quote, there's no indication that this is related to any serial incidences, incidences, ah, incidents that we know of. So a couple of other theories were floating around after her death. The serial killer thing just didn't pan out. Um, They thought she was murdered by a cab driver because her body had like very obviously been moved from the spot where she was actually murdered. Like it, there was no evidence. Like you said, there was no evidence where her body was found. So like it was clear that her body had been moved. Mm. Um, yeah. Honestly, my dumbass didn't even think about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, luckily the investigators did. (laughs) Those little smarties. Right. So what would be easiest? Like, how else would you transport a body that you had just murdered? Like, cab drivers have easy access to a vehicle. Mm -hmm. Like, and then you just like, I don't know, run it off a bridge or something. Who knows? Anyways. Oh, oh, oh. Messing everything up over here. Okay. So they also thought that she had been murdered by like a rival band. What? Like some other band in um, Seattle just like murdered her. Oh, plot twist. It was Nirvana. Oh my God. <laughs> and then and then the kids found out and then actually. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Wow. What a conspiracy. Okay. So Nirvana killed Mia Zapata and then in turn the Gets killed Kurt Cobain. Just kidding. We're joking. 100% kidding. Oh my God. Did not happen. Courtney Love did it. (laughs) Anyways. So the like rival band theory did not really hold water. They like literally could not prove it. So others believed that she was murdered by an acquaintance. But most people believed that she had just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. And she was murdered by a complete stranger. So, unfortunately, they were right. Uh, Mia was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, A murderer saw an opportunity to rape and kill a young woman, and he took it. So this is going to be pretty dark here. Um, Mia's case went unsolved for 10 years. And like I said, her body had been moved. So investigators didn't know where the official crime scene was. They, like, had no freaking clue. They knew, like, 
where she was. They knew like her general timeline and her general location before it happened, but they didn't know like if the attacker had attacked her between in those two blocks between wherever she was going and then like attacked her there and killed her there and then transported her body. They they just didn't know. They didn't know if he like lured her somewhere else and murdered her somewhere else and then moved her again. They just like there's no no way to know. Mm. They only knew the place her body had been found. They knew the murder weapon was her hoodie strings, and she had clearly been been sexually assaulted and badly beaten. However, there was, like Erica said, there was no DNA to link the suspect to the scene, and there were no witnesses because it was 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it was Seattle, like downtown Seattle, so you would think there would be some witness, like someone should have heard her screams. But anyways, no witnesses. So for 10 years... Mia's friends and family were not given closure for the loss of someone so important in their lives. Her bandmates and Joan Jett hired a private investigator named Lee Heron, and they continued to rally for people to provide information. They were like begging for witnesses, begging for literally anything. So a little bit of a happy turn here. Wow, I can't think of words. The medical examiner did notice a bite mark on her right breast. So he took a sample swab and sent it in to be tested. It did turn out to be saliva, but the sample was like too small to be tested for DNA. That's fucking shit. It was 1993. Like our technology was ass then. Mm -hmm. It just like was not great. So her case went cold for like nine more years. So one thing that was super wild to me was that a couple weeks prior to Mia's death, she told her, the Gitz drummer, Steve Moriarty, that she wanted to write a song about a serial killer. What the fuck? So the song is called Sign of the Crab, and here are some lyrics. Are you ready? This is like wild. This, you're not ready. Fucking you're ready. Not. Let's hear it. Okay. So the lyrics are... Anything to get me in and then get me killed. Go ahead and slash me up. Spread me all across this town. Because you know you're the one that won't be found. Oh my god. It was one of them, wasn't it? Yes. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Oops. I thought you were going to say something else. Anyways. No, it was not. (laughs) Okay. So... All right, anyways, back to this, like, horrific murder. Here we go. So, in 1993, some scientist dude named Carrie Mullis. Carrie. Carrie Mullet. um, Invented a technique called, like, bear with me here. I cannot pronounce this. Polymerase. Polymerase? Polyam. Polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. Isn't that, like... Aren't the tests, like the COVID tests that probe your brain, aren't they PCR tests? Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I thought they were. Anyways, whatever. That's besides the point. So this PCR technique made it possible to, you guessed it, do DNA testing on super small samples. Can you think of a super small sample of DNA that we need to test? The freaking saliva? Yeah, let's test the saliva. So um, fast forward to 2001. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eight years after mia had been murdered it was he invented this thing in 1993 and her like case went unsolved for 10 years because they didn't test the swab for eight years so finally the swab that had been taken by the medical examiner was finally tested 
took them long enough. Mm-mm-mm. So they got a mix of DNA. Um, one was obviously Mia's and the others was of a, an, un, an unknown male. They entered the male's DNA into CODIS, which is like the database that stores the DNA profiles of everyone who has committed a felony in the United States. So like if this dude was a previous offender, they were going to find him. Mm. They like at least narrowed it down to someone in the United States at that moment. And he, they knew he was a male. So they're like, they're getting there. They're making a little bit of headway. All right, all right. The only thing is, uh, he wasn't a previous offender, or at least a felon. He wasn't a felon. So they were back to square one. Interesting. Well, I guess more like square two, because they had a DNA profile. They just didn't know who it belonged to. Right, right. So a whole year later, uh, now it's 2002, the CODIS system finally found a match for this DNA profile. The DNA belonged to a Cuban exile named Jesus Mezquia. He was exiled from Cuba... For being a felon. Imagine that. So boy just like swam on up to Florida and he was like, I'll make my home here. I'm going to live here and then I'm going to go up to Seattle and like murder some bitches. Anyways. Because why not? uh, So he had previous offenses in Florida and in Arizona, but none in Washington. I'm like not sure why CODIS didn't match him sooner. Um, Like if he had previous offenses in Florida and Arizona. And he's been in the United States for that long. I don't know. I don't know why it didn't. Maybe none of his offenses were felonies. But like, mm, I doubt it because he's a murderer. I don't know. Whatever. So uh, the hunt for this this piece of shit started. Uh, but right away he dipped. He was living in Florida. So the Seattle PD told the Marath- Marathon Florida Police Department to keep him in their sights. So Marathon Florida was the place he was living at that time. So in 2002, nine years after Mia's death. Ugh. So Mezquia was gone before the Florida Police Department could even get their eyes on him. He literally just like dipped. So he was on probation. So he did come home a few days later and he claimed that he had been working on a fishing boat in Miami. Mm. So he just like left. But also you're not supposed to not stay at your house when you're on probation. Right. I guess I don't know if it's different now than it was in 2002, but who knows? Either way, that's probably a probation violation. So upon questioning him, Mezquia denied ever having seen or spent time with Mia Zapata. They like sat him down and lined up a a bunch of pictures of like a bunch of different females and like made Mia stand out. And they were like, do you recognize any of these girls? And he was like, no, I don't, sorry. And then they like specifically pointed to Mia and they were like, what about her? And he goes, nope, don't know her. So like, obviously they knew that this was bullshit and that he knew Mia because they had his DNA on her body. Mm. They even took like a fresh sample and it still matched. Boy was caught. With a little more digging, they found out that he had lived in Seattle around the time of Mia's death. And he had only lived three blocks from where her body had been found. So yeah, um, there's no escaping. You screwed, bud. So Mezquia was tried on the charges of premeditated first degree murder and quote unquote, first degree felony murder based on first or second degree rape. I have no idea what that means. So good luck. Sure. The trial lasted a month. And he was ultimately convicted of the murder of 27-year-old Mia Zapata. He was sentenced to 36 years in prison, which is not enough, in my opinion. No. Um, He was 54 when he was convicted. So he'll be like 90 when he gets out in 2040. If he even lives. Yeah, if he doesn't die in there or get released for fucking good behavior. Did you know? I didn't know this. Maybe it's because I'm dumb a little bit. But did you know a life sentence is only 25 years? Excuse me? 
Yeah. My dumbass thought it was like a life sentence was literally like for life. You're going to die in there. No, a life sentence is 25 years. I hate our justice system. I yeah. hate it. It's the like, worst. Bro, that's not life. No, that's like, I mean, it's more than our lives right now at this point. Oh. Luke just informed us that if you are given like with life without the possibility of parole, then you are in there for life. Otherwise, if they give you the possibility with parole, that probably means that you're up for parole after 25 years. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, glad we cleared that up. Anyway, so... Thanks, at Luke. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Luke. You're the best. <laughs> so, anyways, he still, like, did not get enough time. That's just not enough time. He literally right. took this woman's life. She had so much life left in her. And, like, got away with it. How are you going to, like, get him off so easy? Like, right. Exactly. It's so dumb. Our he already just... had his vacation. <laughs> exactly. Like... He had 10 years to live it up. Anyways, so, <laughs> this guy's a piece of shit, and I can't stand him. Ugh. So I like really hope that he actually like dies. If he like doesn't, I really hope that he doesn't get out on good behavior because our country is really stupid about letting people out on good behavior. Mm -hmm. Like drug offenses, absolutely not. You're in here for your full sentence. You can't get out on good behavior. But like if you're a freaking murderer, yeah, okay. But you've been good for 10, 15 years. You can go. Right. Go out and continue being a murderer. (laughs) So, um, that's basically it. But obviously this case brings up like a ton of issues. I've already discussed like the whole sex worker thing and the, um, boyfriend being a veteran. Mm -hmm. Um, so the fact that the authorities thought that the perpetrator thought that Mia was a sex worker is an issue in and of itself, clearly. But also the fact that she was like walking home alone and this happened. Um, I want to say that I would like never do that like walk home by myself but that's not the issue it's not mia's fault that she was brutally murdered by this sick bastard uh the issue in my opinion is that men think that they can take whatever they want whenever they want even if mezkia had hired a sex worker that night and murdered her instead that still doesn't justify his actions like he still murdered a human being The biggest issue with this case is men's pride and that if they don't get what they want, they get pissed and then they feel like they need to take it regardless of like consent. Women, I'm sorry, I'm like getting on my soapbox here. I'm really upset about this case. So women should like not have to walk around with pepper spray or their keys sticking out of their fingers. We should literally just be able to walk around whenever we want, wearing whatever we want and not have to worry about our lives being at stake. We should literally not have to fear for our lives just for walking and existing. Mm -hmm. It's such bullshit. So basically, ladies, take self-defense classes um, because the human race sucks. It's bullshit that this happened to Mia and I feel absolutely horribly for her father who spent the whole decade that her case was unsolved searching for an answer. He literally, like, never stopped looking. He would, like, I read somewhere that he would walk the same route that she Mm -hmm. took between, like, wherever she was going that night. He would walk that route so many times to try and figure out what happened. Like, he worked so hard and he tried and he just wanted that closure. So, anyways, I hope that Mezquia dies in the cell that he is rotting in right now. I hope that he never sees the light of day again. I'm really mad. Anyways... So that's our show. <laughs> that's our show. 
Okay, that's great. Okay, so I believe that is all that we have for you today. Um, don't forget to join us in another two weeks for another uh, 27 Club murder. That's sort of our theme for the first couple of episodes. All right, we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. If you or someone you know has been a victim of sexual assault, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. Thank you for listening to Murder on the Music Scene. Our cover art and our music and editing is done by Caitlin Anderson. Check out our website at murderonthemusicscene.com and don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Murder on the Music Scene. If you have suggestions or comments, email us at murderonthemusicscene at gmail.com. All of our episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. If you would like to support us you can become a patron on patreon just search murder on the music scene or use the link on our website make sure to join us next time for another conspiracy filled episode of murder on the music scene